You're listening to the Move to Value podcast, powered by Chess Health Solutions. The Move to Value podcast is dedicated to helping healthcare providers understand and make the transition into value-based care. We do this through conversations and the sharing of innovative ideas with practitioners, experts, and leaders throughout the healthcare industry. Our mission is to sustainably transform the healthcare experience for the patient, provider, and care team by cultivating a value-oriented, compassionate, and health-aligned community. Today on the Move to Value podcast, we continue with part two of a presentation on diabetes medication management given by Chess Director of Pharmacy, Rebecca Grandy, which includes helpful information, updates, and reminders. So thinking about these medicines, are they effective? Yes. And so the ADA actually categorizes these as high to very high. So depending on the medicine and the dose, you're looking at about a 2% reduction in A1C, which is really good. And doesn't cause low blood sugar because these medicines, again, are glucose dependent. So they only kick in and help your body use your insulin if you're eating and have glucose in your system. Um, Weight loss. So you're going to get that, and it's going to be moderate to very high, depending on the um, individual drug. So when you look at, and so we're going to move sort of our heart benefit now. And so when you look at this red section around um, major cardiovascular events or heart failure, um, you can see three here, dilaglutide, which is trulicity, liraglutide, which is victoza, and semaglutide, which is ozempic. And here I put um, SQ because this really only applies to the injection version of semaglutide. So there is an oral version called ribelsis um, that's out, but it doesn't seem to have exactly the same effects. Heart failure benefit, neutral. Not bad, not good, just neutral. But again, thinking back way back to the days of rosiglitazone, Avandia, that is something they want everyone, um, any new drug to be tested on is that heart failure benefit or harm. And then these even protect your kidneys because of the ways that they work. And so kind of the same ones here, you'll see, um, you know, I mentioned that Xenotide, which is Bieta Bidurion, was the first one to come out. It's kind of fallen out of favor. Um, the injection device historically was really hard to use. It caused a lot of adverse events um, because of the way it worked and got absorbed in the body. Like people would have these injection site reactions. Um, and so it's really it's really sort of fallen out of favor. And so you'll see these most commonly. And then um, as far as renal dosing, most of them are just fine. Um, The biggest thing is if you know someone has renal impairment and you're gonna start one of these medicines, they need to stay hydrated because it decreases your food intake. You decrease your food intake, usually your water intake is being decreased. And so if people get dehydrated and they're already having kidney issues at baseline, it's really easy to have some acute um, kidney Um, injury or or issues there. And I've seen that happen. And so you just need to be careful about that. Um, Next slide. So why wouldn't everyone be on these, right? Well, a few reasons. Um, One is that the ones that have the most benefit are going to be the sub-Q injections. Some people just have weird feelings about needles. you know, like I said, and there's lots of justified reasons for that, right? Like sometimes people associate injections with I have the bad diabetes, I'm going to lose my limbs. Um, I've had people, especially now, who have a history of injection drug use and they're tr- and, and needles are triggering for them and they just don't want to do anything with a needle. So that's one reason. Um, I will say 
um, Trulicity, Manjaro, and then the um, weight loss version of Manjaro, which is Zeptide, actually come in these really cool injection devices where you never even have to see the needle. It's my favorite injection device if you ever want to know, if you want to Google it, like Google um, Trulicity, Manjaro, or Zepbound, and you can see how they work. It's my favorite. The other reason people don't use these is that they're expensive. Um, Medicare, Medicaid, and private insurances do usually cover these for diabetes. Um, Medicaid and Medicare do not cover them for weight loss. And so this is where it sometimes gets tricky with our value-based care and diabetes measures. So let's say you have a Medicare patient that comes to you and they don't have diabetes, but let's say they have prediabetes and they have a BMI of 40 and they want to lose weight. Well, Medicare is not going to cover the um, the weight loss version. And so for the for the meds and brand names, those are Zepbound for Trizepatide, and then for semaglutide, that's called Wigovi. Medicare is not going to cover that. So for this person sitting in front of me, you know, they have prediabetes, they have a BMI of 40, I may prescribe Mounjaro or Ozempic. When I do that, it's going to put them into the diabetes measure. Um, the popularity of these drugs, understandably so, because again, they're some of my favorite drugs, have um, made it where there are drug shortages, which is have which has affected our medication adherence to diabetes um, drugs this year. So, you know, it's come with a lot of just interesting things that have happened culturally. If you are a TikTok TikTok user, I'm sorry to say TikTok user, a TikTok user, you've probably seen these drugs there. I think Elon Musk said he was taking Ozempic. Um, they really become somewhat of a cult phenomenon. Um, for our Medicare folks, because of the price, this is also some somewhere we just need to be mindful. And I'm going to talk more about that in the next section. But when we think about some of the things we just need to be aware of, um, there is, um, in rats, there has been shown to be an increase in thyroid um, C-cell cancer. Um, it's called MTC. It's actually never been seen in humans, only in rats and at higher doses. But that's usually part of the intake form, right? We'll ask if you have any family history of thyroid cancers. And um, there is an association with pancreatitis. And I was really careful to put association here and not causation because people with diabetes usually have high triglycerides and are usually at risk for pancreatitis anyway. But if you have a patient that has chronic pancreatitis or a history of recurrent pancreatitis, probably wise to avoid these medicines. Um, Gallbladder disease, they, these medicines can cause some pretty significant weight loss. And as with any rapid weight loss, you need to be thinking about gallbladder if people are having you know, stomach issues. And then I just go ahead and tell people, when you start these medicines, about 50% of people are going to experience some degree of gastrointestinal side effects, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea. Usually we start at really small doses and titrate up. Usually the effects are temporary. And so usually after a few weeks, they get better. But there are things that we can do and counsel our patients on to make those side effects better. So eating small meals, when you're full, stop eating. That's one of the ways they work, right? Is they help you know that you're full. Um, fatty foods, spicy foods, um, 
And then you can even slow down the titration. So a lot of them have a titration plan of increasing every week or every month, depending on the drug, but there's no harm in going slower. Like you can always go slower. And so at this point, I will address Catherine's. I would love to hear your thoughts on compounding versions like semaglutide with B6. So what has been happening is because the weight loss versions um, like Wagovi, which is semaglutide, that's the FDA-approved obesity GLP-1, um, is not covered by a lot of private insurances and not covered by Medicare and Medicaid. A lot of people, you know, want the benefit from these medicines, but their insurance doesn't afford it. So there are lots of compounding pharmacies out there that can compound these or make these medicines um, and make them less expensive. So maybe instead of $1,000 a month out of pocket, now it's $200 a month. Um, The problem with those compounded versions is that in the the history of compounding pharmacies in the U.S. with medicines similar to this, um, it's easy if the compounding pharmacy is not um, following guidelines and procedures to have contaminants. Sometimes they use different salt forms or slightly different forms of the drugs that haven't been FDA approved. And so for me to endorse them, I can't endorse them. However, I will say that I'm empathetic and understand people's desire to have this treatment and therapy because I think it is a game changer. I think in the U.S. we struggle with the pricing of it, though, because when you look at it purely from a pricing standpoint and you take out the patient, which, you know, we don't do that, but if we looked at it purely from a pricing standpoint, the way these drugs are priced in the U.S. right now for weight loss specifically, you don't get your return on investment. And so when you think about the lifetime of a patient and being on these medicines and paying $12,000 a year, the return on investment is really not there. When you go to another country where the pricing is very, very different, then you do get your return on investment. So I think the so it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next few years because I love these medicines because they have all those other good benefits. I do think they're game changers. We're just going to have to keep an eye on the pricing and see what happens. Um So as far as compounded versions, the issue is that you can't really guarantee the purity of them or just the safety of them. I anecdotally have heard of people who have taken them and had success, but I don't have a particular like compounding pharmacy. I could say, oh, yes, you should use this one because because it's a good one. Um, Next slide. Okay, and so for these very effective, usually you have um, about a 2% lowering of your A1C, no low blood sugar. Again, that's because they're glucose dependent. Oh, actually, I'm sorry, we've already, we switched gears here. This is our GIP GLP-1 agonist, terzepatide. And when I first saw this medicine, I was confused because I was like, oh, it's a GIP and a GLP-1 agonist. Why are there not two drugs in this one? Because it's actually because terzepatide, the only one in this class, right? Mount Jaro is the diabetes-approved version. The weight loss or obesity version is ZepBound that just came out. This particular hormone or molecule actually hits both. It hits It's an agonist for both those receptors, which is pretty cool. Um, so you have one drug that hits both. 
Um, no hypoglycemia, again, because these are glucose dependent. Um, weight loss, very high. So usually at like the, for this one, the 12.5 milligram to 15 milligram dose, which is some of the maintenance doses, you have people who are losing, you know, 25% of their body weight and maintaining it. Um, so pretty amazing there. As far as heart benefits, kidney benefits, still under investigation. It's such a new medicine. They just really don't have that information yet. I'm imagining it will be the same as some of the just pure GLP-1s where there is some sort of benefit. Again, you got to think about people who have baseline kidney disease because if they're getting dehydrated, you can cause a bump in their serum creatinine. So you have to make sure you're telling people to hydrate well, drink water, take fluids. So again, this one, um, Maljaro, Terzepatide, um, very similar to just your plain GLP-1, sort of the same counseling points. Um, thyroid, you know, making sure there's no family history of thyroid cancer. And it's a very specific type, again, only has been seen in rats. Looking out for patients with history of pancreatitis, making sure if they're losing weight, you're thinking about their gallbladder. And then, uh, again, those side effects um, are related to the GI issues, nausea, vomiting, diarrhea, and just making sure we're doing everything we can to minimize those. All right, so now we've talked about all these great drugs that would be amazing if we could get them for our patients. But after we send the prescription in, what happens? So we're going to think through how do we access these medicines, how do we help people with adherence, and then how do we monitor them? Okay, so my next question, um, kind of a trick question. All patients with diabetes should regularly monitor their blood glucose levels at home. True or false? So I put this question in here because I knew it would be controversial. So as we talk through this section, I'll tell you what the guidelines say, and then I'll tell you sort of my practical recommendations. So it looks like we're going to land at probably like a 50-50. <laughs> All right, next slide. Um, I like to start with this slide, especially when I'm talking to frontline providers and especially when I've done presentations to medical residents and faculty physicians before. Um, there have been surveys. This is just one survey. It is not unique, right? Most surveys say this. When they talk to older adults, two-thirds had difficulty affording their medicines, didn't tell their physician. 66% um, of those said their doctor did not ask about affordability of medicine. 58% thought that the physician probably couldn't help them anyway. And then about 50% were embarrassed and said they didn't even ask. So I always share this slide because my point is, Anytime we're prescribing medicines, especially for diabetes, COPD, where we know they're going to be expensive, I just say, hey, a lot of times I'm going to prescribe this medicine for you. Um, a lot of times it's really expensive. It wouldn't be, you know, unusual if you get to the pharmacy and you're surprised by the cost. If that happens to you, call me and say, I'm having some trouble with the price of this medicine. Let me, you know, is there a way that you can help me? So I just actually start the conversation when we send in the prescription to sort of normalize it. Um, and then, so, so here, you know, my point is always just to ask, just kind of make it part of the conversation. 
Next slide. Um, when Shannon was talking about health literacy and understanding um, things related to just the medical world, I automatically thought to the slide. The slide is super confusing. Um, I even have a hard time explaining it. But what this is meant to illustrate is that for our patients that have Medicare, there is something called the coverage gap or donut hole. And so on here, it's, it's referred to as the coverage gap. They have been talking about getting rid of this coverage gap or donut hole, gosh, since I was in pharmacy school, which has been over 15 years ago now, because what happens is, is like, let's say we have a person that has um, heart failure and kidney disease and they have diabetes. So let's say we put them on a GLP-1, we put them on an SGLT-2. Well, you all saw the prices for those. What happens is, is because of that initial coverage and the deductible, a lot of times those patients are going into the coverage gap. When they go into the coverage cap or the donut hole, you can see here, sort of, sort of the price that they have to pay. So if you look at the orange um, sections and you look at the coverage gap right before you get to the out-of-pocket spend threshold, they're having to pay 25% currently. Now, 25% doesn't sound like a lot, but when the medicine costs $1,000, like a Manjaro, they have to pay $250. And if we put, when we put them on expensive medicines, even though they're the best medicines for the patient, we speed up the process by which they get to that coverage gap. And so especially for our Medicare folks, talking about the drug costs, talking about affordability is important. Now, luckily, a lot of the drug companies will actually give these medicines to our patients at no cost when they're in that coverage gap. But again, we got to know the patients are having trouble with the medicines before we can do anything about it. Now, fast forward to 2024, 2025, you can see there um, that the deductible stays the same, but there are some changes in when catastrophic coverage kicks in. When that kicks in, they're fully covered again. So there, so there are some changes, but I with the Part D benefit structure, but the point is I don't really expect it to change significantly to where these medicines are affordable year-round for all of our patients. So if you're in a chest contract, this is a great place where the pharmacy team can help your patients. Next slide. Okay, so I'm um, also thinking about Shannon's lecture. If I could have y'all remember one thing, it would be low-income subsidy. Um, and so think, thinking about her lecture, I should put this way in the beginning, but when I think about getting access for patients, if your patient has Medicare and they have trouble affording a medicine, regardless of what the medicine is, the first thing they should be assessed for is something called low-income subsidy or extra help. It is a federal program offered through the Social Security Administration. You can see the link here. Um, it's a relatively quick application online if someone can help the patient do it online um, that says whether or not they're at an income. And usually it's like 150% of the federal poverty level to where they may be eligible for this extra help. Not only does it help them with their prescription co-pays, but depending on their income level, it may help them with their Part B premiums as well. And so that's what they pay, you know, monthly to go to the doctor's office. So it can save your patients thousands of dollars if they're eligible. 
And a lot of folks in North Carolina are, and they just don't know it. Um, the other things that we can do that I've mentioned are those patient assistance program applications through drug manufacturers, um, low-income program only for Medicare age. Yes, unfortunately. So when you think about our commercial folks who have exchange insurance through the ACA, those are hard folks to help with med access. And so low-income subsidy is only Medicare. Um, okay. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this slide, but, you know, when you think about we prescribed it, we're able to get it for them through their insurance or manufacturer. Now we have to make sure that they take it. So these are some key things that we can think through to make sure patients are able to, to um, take their medicines. Cost, if it's more than $10, they're 2.6 times more likely not to be adherent, right? Or I'm sorry, it's the opposite of that. If it's low cost, less than $10, they're 2.6 times more likely to be adherent. Um, access to pharmacies. When you're thinking about just transportation, social determinants of health, this is why we really encourage people to do 90-day supplies. If they want to use a mail-order pharmacy, that's great. Some pharmacies also deliver, you know, some local independent pharmacies. So there are some things we could do to think through how do we remove those social determinants of health barriers. Um, regimen complexity. So this is interesting, right? Adherence for once daily dosing, 79%. Twice daily dosing, 66%. Three times, 38%. I don't know if how many of y'all have been prescribed antibiotics recently, but for me, if they're more than twice a day, like it's just really hard to remember to do those. Um, mental health. So, you know, we've talked a lot about sort of specifics around the diabetes medicines, the diabetes care. But if we have someone who's depressed, you know, that creates a whole different sort of um, circumstance that we're working with, you know, related to adherence and just self-care. Um, age. So um, people less than 65 are more likely to be non-adherent than those of our Medicare um, age. And then um, when you look at patients with diabetes, one of the most common um, reasons they're not adherence is because adverse effects. So this particular res particularly resonates with me with metformin. So right, so a lot of people have GI side effects from metformin, and that's why anytime y'all have a prescription and a patient that has metformin, I always encourage you know to do the slow titration up. You know we're in this for the long game, long haul. We're not in it for the short term. So always slowly titrating those medicines and letting people know what to expect. Like hey, you're probably going to have some side effects from this. Um, maybe you'll feel a little not nauseated, have some diarrhea, but it will get better. And here are some things you can do to help. Again, these are things that I know y'all know. Adherence, um, thinking about the impact of, you know, why it's so important. Not only does it improve the A1C, decreases trips to the emergency room, hospitalization, lowers healthcare costs, and ultimately at the end of the day, you know, it helps people live longer, healthier lives. Um, as far as adherence goes, here are some best practices. Tell people why they're taking their medicines. Tell them how long to expect to take it. Um, I used to work in a heart failure clinic, and I remember people would get discharged on, you know, a 30-day supply of their Carvedilol, and they would come back. They're not taking it anymore. And I'm like, oh, I'm like, oh, why are you not taking this anymore? They're like, well, I finished the day supply, or my blood pressure is good. You know, so really explaining to people. And this goes for those diabetes medicines too, right? Like we're trying to lower your blood sugar, yes, 
But when your A1C is controlled, you have to take this, you know, ongoing to maintain that control. Or let's say they're on something like a Farsiga, which is an SGLT2. You're taking this because it also protects your kidneys and improves your heart failure. So just clarifying the duration of therapy, clarifying exactly why they're taking it can be can be helpful. I found that especially true in the heart failure world. Like, yes, it's a blood pressure medicine, but it also helps protect your heart muscle and strengthen your heart muscle. I'm talking about those side effects up front. Um, we've talked about the 90-day prescriptions, mail orders, or mail, you know, delivery. Um, and just thinking about like value-based care, one of the things that can be really helpful um, when we're providing good care is to actually just document the care that we're providing. So for example, if you have a patient that's taking metformin, 500 milligrams, two tablets twice a day, but they're not really taking that because they can't tolerate it, send in a new prescription to the pharmacy. Send it in for what they actually are taking, right? The 500 twice a day. That So that actually helps us document the good care we're providing and helps us um, meet some of those quality measures. Cost of medicine, just ask, make it part of the conversation for disease states that have expensive medicines. Next slide. Um, we'll spend a little bit of time on this because we have just a few minutes left, but I just want to talk about some blood glucose monitoring best practices. So A1Cs, even if someone is well controlled, the guidelines say we should do that twice a year. If they are not well controlled, we should do it about every three months. And as y'all know, we don't do it more frequently than every three months because an A1C, you know, measures the sugar coating or the glycosylation of those um, red blood cells. The red blood cells have a lifespan of about 90 days. So that's why we don't do it more frequently than every 90 days. Um, I will say at my previous practice, it was a struggle to get people to check A1Cs twice a year and people who are controlled because they're like, their A1C is 6.8. Why do I want to check it again? But I think being in the habit of trying to do every six months actually um, can help us just provide timely patient care and also helps with quality measures. Next slide. Okay, so here's the controversial slide. So this is straight from the um, guidelines. So for people who are on insulin, blood glucose monitoring should be encouraged when appropriate, when appropriate based on their insulin regimen. So depending on the insulin regimen, it varies. When you look at the end of this quote, there is a B. So B means um, it's kind of the level of evidence. So, you know, there's A, B, C, and then we skip to E. So B means there's pretty good evidence to support that. So if they're on insulin, yep, they should be checking their blood sugar. Look at the next one, though. Although blood glucose monitoring in individuals on non-insulin therapies has not been consistently shown to improve A1C, it may be helpful in altering diet, physical activity, or for managing medicines. So I think the days when someone first gets diagnosed with diabetes and we give them a glucometer and we say, check your blood sugar every day, I think those days are kind of outdated at this point. Um, what I think can be really helpful and what I recommend, especially if people are on regimens that don't cause low blood sugar is something called testing in pairs. And it's really to give your patient insight into how their actions affect their blood sugar. So for example, um, let's say that Miss Smith really wants to go to IHOP and have a pancake breakfast with her family. And she's like, huh, I wonder how this is going to affect my blood sugar. 
What you should encourage her to do is test in pairs. She checks her blood sugar before she goes in. And then after the first bite of food, she times it for about two hours and checks it two hours later. And that testing in pairs, having the before and after, can give you an idea of how your body responds to that particular food or that exercise or that new medicine. So testing in pairs can be really helpful when you're trying to test a change in your lifestyle. So do all patients need blood glucose monitoring? Probably not but it's been kind of like aspirin, right? Like aspirin for primary prevention. It's something that we've done a long time. It gives people like a tangible number to react to. Um, and so I, you know, I'd always advocate for more testing rather than less testing, but it may not be as, as necessary um, in all patients. Next slide. Okay, so I'll just talk a little bit about this because this could be a whole day lecture in and of itself. Continuous glucose monitoring. So think about your Freestyle Libres, your Dexcoms. These have been game changers for patients that I've worked with because it does give them real-time feedback on what their blood sugars are doing. And so for people who are on multiple daily injections or now even basal injections through that one-time-a-day insulin, Medicare will cover that and most insurances will. Next slide. And so this is the kind of report that you get back from that. And so you can see the green here is the time they've spent in target. You can see the red is when they're too low. And then the um, yellow there is when they're too high. And so you can print that out. And it even gives you an estimation of what their A1C would be. So you don't even necessarily have to check their A1C in that moment because this is providing sort of real time um, of what it could be. Um, or actually, it's probably even better um, because it's telling you, um, you know, over the past, you know, month or whatever, they've checked it sort of what their A1C would be if you were to actually do like a point of care or a blood draw at that point. Next slide. So then it's like, okay, what do I do with this continuous glucose monitoring? So luckily, the ADA actually has some pretty specific guidance on that. So in general, for someone's time and range, so let's say you want their blood sugar to be no layer, lower than 80, um, and no higher than like, let's say 150, you want that time and range to be about 70%. Below range, you want that to be less than 4 and then um, less than 54, less than 1%. Now, if you have an older adult, 85 years old, they're frail, you can loosen up on that some, just like you loosen up on their A1C goals. And so when you're thinking about time and range, we actually say 50% is acceptable, less than 1% below range. And so really up to 50%, you could have them running high as long as they're not symptomatic because we're really just trying to prevent falls and adverse effects from happening. Um, but thank you for listening. And so just to recap on the answers, though, um, so the first one, smoking cessation actually has the most mortality benefit in diabetes. Um, for the second one, metformin is not necessarily first-line therapy anymore. However, it's cheap. It works really well. But when you think about folks with heart failure, with kidney disease, with um, cardiovascular risk, there are ones that are more beneficial. Um, and then terzepatide does all the above, pretty much does all the things. And then do all patients need to check their blood glucose? Probably not, but it does have a place and it's really informative for the patients to see how their actions affect their blood sugars. This is the Move to Value podcast, powered by Chess Health Solutions. 
We hope you have enjoyed this episode. If you would like more information about this and other episodes, you can head over to movetovaluepodcast.com to check out all of the available resources. If you're interested in continuing to hear about value-based care and how it impacts you, you can sign up for our email notifications or subscribe to this podcast on your favorite podcasting platform. Also, we would love it if you would share the Move to Value podcast across your networks and leave a rating or review. Thanks for listening.